Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It is my real pleasure to welcome Rachel Lazar to the Bully Pulpit to speak to us about bridging the divide across race and culture in America. She's a public speaker and consultant on the topic, and it's great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You remind us in a really compellingly in a Huffington Post article you wrote that white people simply view the world differently from black people. There are lots of reasons for this, but two of the ones that I derived from your article were that One, white people simply enjoy a point of view that corresponds more conveniently and more ready to society's dominant way of understanding things. It's it's an easier setup. It more readily suits us in reality. And the second reason that I got from your article is that because we bring our history to everything we see and black people bring theirs and it's a much more fraught history, frankly, than white people. The question I want to ask you is about being Jewish, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I think most Jews imagine themselves as in an intermediate position. I want to ask you if that's fair, or do you have to say that's a little bit too convenient for for middle-class Jews who can pass as white? I think it's a question that's on a lot of Jews' minds today. You know, are Jews white, especially in an era where politically a certain set of progressive Jews have an interest in not identifying as white? A political interest in not identifying as white. And a moral interest. uh, uh... And a moral interest as well. I just think that we first have to acknowledge, right, that not all Jews are white. So that's a starting point. Right. So, I mean, Brandeis has some good numbers on this and 11 percent of Jews in America aren't white, period, are Jews of color. If a Martian were to view them in a society in America, that this this objective third party wouldn't wouldn't assume that they were white, simply on the basis of their appearance. And they have different racial identities that I think often would, their appearances would correspond to, right? So I think, so that's one important point, right, that a lot of Jews... We sort of talk about Jews as a group as being sort of European, and we're not. One can be forgiven for making that generalization, mm-hmm. though, because certainly the dominant history in Jewish America is, it corresponds to that. 100%. 100%. So I completely agree with you. When we're talking about white Jews, then, you know, there is this, A, longing politically, morally, sometimes on behalf of some Jews to, to not be white. There's the sense of passing that you refer to, which is the genuine feeling inside of a lot of European yeah. Jews that we're actually not white in the sense of sort of American white common culture. And then there's also this baggage of actually not being considered white by the census in America, right? So all of that is very understandable. And I would even add one more thing and say that when Jews wear ga- religious garb out in public, mm-hmm. that we really are much more othering ourselves and we aren't as white on the sliding scale of whiteness. We're just not, right? So, okay, taking that out of the equation as well, though, I think it's important to acknowledge that society perceives most European Jews as white and that we get the benefits from whiteness that other people with white skin or that are that are seen as having white skin get. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is if we don't have an ethnic sounding name, and by that I don't mean David or Joshua or Rachel as much as Laquisha or Shmuley or, you know, right, a name that really differentiates us, that studies have shown that if we have a, you know, my kids, for example, are Emily, Nicole, and Alexander. Right, if they were Devorah and... Right, it may be different, but they're not. And so when they apply for a job, 
and their resumes are put up against people with traditionally African-American sounding names, right? Like Laquisha or something right, right, right. that they have a 50% greater chance of getting a call back for the job by, you know, standard studies, right? Or that John Hopkins did a study in 2016 that showed that white school teachers tend to give the benefit of the doubt to white students that they're going to have success and graduate from high school. And my kids are benefiting from that. I get that. And, right. I, and I'm aware of the studies, at least in popular culture or through the New York Times or what have you. I'm, I'm aware of those studies sure. that you're citing. And I totally get it. We get the benefit of certain white benefit. Okay, so far so good. However, many would support you and go even further than you and say that even if you are Joshua David Yanklovich, mm -hmm. you're still going to get the benefit. Even if you wear a yarmulke and you go out, you're still going to get the benefit because the otherness of Jews, even when explicitly and aggressively categorized in their otherness, nevertheless still exists in stereotypes that, though not belonging to the dominant white narrative, fit well with it. So, for example, Jews are considered smart. Jews are considered good with money. All these stereotypes. If you're going to get stereotyped by things, at least they have a certain utility that white America will accept and work with. But it's still comparably othered. See, I guess I would distinguish Jews from, say, blacks in America on a different measurement. And what I would say is blacks have a history in America that is incomparable, period. They came over in chains. Ta-Nehisi Coates has this article on reparations, and the subtitle of it is, I believe, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of housing discrimination. There is a different and documented history of yeah. discrimination that is on a t completely different level of black lives, truly not counting in this country yeah. in the same way, yeah. and being traded and sold, and even starting with the three-fifths clause, right. you know, and so I and think before. that just, and before, yeah, absolutely. so I think just on that basis alone, it is not, no matter sort of our stereotypes versus other people's stereotypes, I mean, in The Color of Fear, this old movie, it's a real conversation between men of different races, and it's sort of segments of that time that they spent together, like at a retreat center, and there's a powerful point in the film where one of the African-American men says, I am not your version of America, and accept me. I want to be American too, but stop making me be your version right. of American. Someone posted on Facebook an article about how Jews interrupt. You know, we were joking about right. this before we started, and we're interrupting each other. And that article talked about how that really comes from this sort of collaborative thinking of Talmudic study, and, you know, and it's part of our tradition. But I feel like that interrupting sort of part of our culture isn't very American. It's not It's not accepted in American culture, no right? It's looked down upon. And yeah. I've been critical of myself for being right. that way, right. right? Like that kind of person, I feel bad about myself. I, I feel rude. I feel right. self-centered. I feel, you know, all these things. That kind of pettiness associated with it. Yeah, yeah. That kind of pettiness associated with it. So there are ways in which I think other minorities can sort of share experiences that 
other minorities like African-Americans have too, of not feeling sort of part of America in the same way, like thinking of beauty ideals. I have a friend who's African-American who's making a documentary film about black beauty ideals and talking about how different, you know, black women, you know, are brought up to feel like their noses are too wide and their lips right. are too big skin and too skin too dark. And again, you know, as a Jewish woman, I find myself listening and thinking, oh yeah, our noses are too big and our eyes are too set too close together and our skin isn't quite as fair or if we have blonde hair, it's honey blonde, it's not white blonde, or, you know, I mean, yeah, and there's, right, and there's, so there, there are these, again, you know, these sort of, like, analogous, you know, but it's not the same, is the real point, but, but to your point of, you know, some of the, uh, the othering of Jews has sort of worked for us, yeah. I guess some of it has and some of it hasn't, and just being sort of othered and differentiated has implications both ways, so much so that I have a hard time sort of understanding which way it tilts. I don't know whether it tilts more positively or more negatively. The flip side of us being good with money is that we're stingy with money. But on balance, as an American, both you and I are pretty privileged. I'm gathering, I can't speak for you, of course, but I'm, and certainly as a man, I'm speaking for myself, on balance, there's no question that my Jewishness in all of its other gloriousness of has been a total net advantage. At the end of the day, I grew up in this country with every expectation, and indeed did fulfill those expectations of access. Right. That the ball was mine to drop. Right. I mean, that's in the foregroundedness of my Jewishness, not not in my whiteness or my maleness. But you combine those things together, and the otherness of my Jewish personality has been a total dovetail and, 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 a, and a, a distinctively net advantage. See, I think we're having a conversation about whether or not being Jewish is a disadvantage or an advantage, rather than a conversation about whether or not white Jews have white privilege. I just want to make that distinction. That's what I think no, we're talking no, about. You know, because I think we agree that we have access to white privilege. Right, so we agree that we, if we're white Jews, if we're European Jews, yeah. that we have access to white privilege, except that I feel like I could separate out that it's very clear to me that my being white and my family being white when they when they came over from Russia and Hungary and everywhere else, right were advantaged because of being white in ways that benefit me today. So I used to think, you know, I went to Harvard as an undergrad and I worked really hard in high school. I was a late bloomer. I hit puberty late. Like I I was working really hard. I always thought I 100% deserved it. I mean, I just thought I worked really hard. So I deserved it. As I've come to sort of study white privilege, I had to sort of realize and own the fact that, hmm, well, the fact that like when my grandparents came over and they were buying a home and taking advantage of government programs, they weren't, there weren't restricted, there were some restricted covenants for Jews, but it wasn't the same as the redlining that was going on for blacks. I mean, there was some overlap there, but it wasn't, you know, ultimately it wasn't the same. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of passing on the Jews. And there was a lot of passing on the Jews part as well, that my grandparents could, you know, open a business in downtown Miami and sell clothes and, you know, things like that, get a government contract. I mean, the ways in which they're being, in a way that enabled my grandma to have something from her property to pass down to my dad. My parents could move to a neighborhood with a good public school, so I had the advantage of an excellent public school that then prepped me, and my parents were able to have a good education. My dad was the first one to go to college in his family and law school. They had enough money to send me to a private high school that had good connections to colleges, and all of a sudden, it's not like I think that I 
didn't have any part of going to Harvard because I definitely did work hard and I did have some part in it. But my whiteness and my family's whiteness and my white genes and my white skin definitely played a role. How much did my being Jewish play a role or not? Or how much, do, you know, like because Jews value education or whatever. I'm not saying that that's not, doesn't figure into the equation. But what I am saying is it's very clear to me that white privilege played a role in my going to Harvard and even more so that if blacks in America had the same opportunities and didn't have the same history as they suffered from, that my competition would have been much, much more greater. severe. So maybe I would have gotten in or maybe I wouldn't have for yeah. that reason too. If they had the opportunity to fulfill their potential along right. the way, there right. would have been a bigger pool of competition. Does, does that mean that my being Jewish and having sort of Jewish values of education didn't play a role, positive role? No, I'm not negating that. But what I'm saying is to the extent that we're talking about sort of whiteness or white privilege and- But we've already stipulated what you just stated. What you just articulated with respect to Harvard and you, we already stipulated, we agreed on, that you and I are the so, beneficiaries so are we of having a conversation. So we're not having a conversation about race anymore. We're only having a conversation about whether no, being Jewish is an advantage or disadvantage. Well, I think what happened was I was, at, the original question I was asking was about the package of otherness. Uh -huh and its capacity to be as much a positive as it is a negative, mm -hmm. conceptually. Right. And then you rejoined very pointedly and accurately that fine, maybe there is a package of otherness that we can isolate about being Jewish, but regardless, the package of otherness that's associated with being black is net, demonstrably Different. much worse. Right. Different in its nature, and but worse. worse in its- Exactly. It, exactly. And again, that much, I think, I think we actually agree. Okay, got it. Um, I, I just think it's, it's interesting that otherness can be a positive. Yes. And, and I think that that needs to be said mm. because otherness and discrimination, negative discrimination, are often conflated mm -hmm. in the public discourse. Right. And, and, uh, well, that's and, okay. that, and, and that's so I'm, I'm, I'm offering a I corrective. It. I got it. And I, I thank you. That's no, clarifying. Thank you for, you clarified me. <laughs> and I think that idea and that notion of otherness being a positive is actually really fundamental in race conversations as well, just to bring it back to that for a moment, just because this concept that like maybe you and I grew up with, that color blindness is the right, way to go, right, right. Is, is completely out of vogue and it's out of vogue for a reason, right? right Which is that course, like right. in an ideal world, we both a acknowledge that there are very real differences that come from our different histories. And so that makes a difference. What color your skin is has made a difference. It makes right. a difference. And number two, there's a lot to celebrate about our differences, right. right? And so in the end, you know, what again, is- the yeah. celebration mm -hmm. of diversity and pluralism yeah. is not, doesn't really impinge on my comment, even if you're trying to agree with me. Right. Because we use the word other with, with decidedly negative connotations that overlap distinctly with discrimination, negative baggage of history, legitimate negative baggage of history, I mean, you know. And, and I'm trying to separate those things out and make other radically neutral mm -hmm. and thereby to bring into stark relief and clarity mm -hmm. the, 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 the irreducible negativity of certain specific sets of experiences. Okay. And that's, that's more just to me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to package black suffering with othering because that's not the point. The point is that it's suffering. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is demonstrable, qualifiable suffering. That to me is much, much more powerful, much more of a condemnation of, of our a shared American history than this toying around with the idea of othering, which is benign. Or, I'm, saying, I'm saying it's neutral. To me, it's benign. But, 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 but I, I think that if we're going to be really rigorous about this. I am not a scholar of otherness in the same way as I've really studied sort of white privilege this past year and a half. But I will say that 
it seems to me that there's something in human nature about sort of comfort level and love of your own people, which is very strong. And so I think othering has played a really significant role in the horrible way that African-Americans have been looked at and treated. There are a lot of African-Americans whose DNA composition are like more similar to mine than to like another black person, as right. it turns out. But, right. Right. but that's not how they've been perceived or, and right, that otherness has been. contributed to the dehumanization really you know and the devaluing of their life in the same way as what happened to Jews in in, in Germany and in Europe right around World War II I mean there's something in human nature in othering other people that makes it easier to dehumanize them they're not like me you know and to not sort of love them and respect them and treat them with the same dignity I think it's it, personally I think it's only in a very sophisticated realm where the, the sort of the the inherent value of other can be recognized not not just celebrated but whether yeah. it, where it can operate as as an advantage I mean you know all these studies now show that when you have you know companies with a certain number of women who are in leadership roles that the companies do better financially the notion of sort of not having places be homogeneous and that when places have diversity and when there is otherness that places even from a business model operate better is so new that people need to do studies and write articles about it. You know, it's not right. an accepted thing. And so, I mean, I listen to what you're saying about Jews in America, and I agree with you that there's so many ways in which being a Jew not just gives us advantages, but can be regarded as powerful and as positive things by yeah, other people even in society. And even enviable sometimes. But I think that, you know, we'd be deluding ourselves if we thought that that was sort of what necessarily the predominant view is, you know, across non Jews in America. And again, it's always hard to know what the minority voices are. And, you know, I recently published a piece, an anti-racism piece, and I got completely cyber harassed, you know, with images of myself superimposed in a gas chamber and Trump dressed as Hitler, you know, with me in the gas chamber. I got hundreds of images and frogs and everything else. And I got I got voicemails on my cell phone number telling me that my cremation oven was ready for pickup. Where is the line in terms of understanding whether my Judaism and uh, Jewish traits in me, I mean, not physical traits necessarily, but you know, even like the stereotypical traits that are assigned to Jews are valued, you know, across the country. I'm not, I, I'm not sure, you so know? So again, I was only trying to use uh, 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 my own example of my own experience as Jewishness to, to articulate the possibility that otherness it might be neutral. And here's why I want to do it. I want to divorce otherness and othering from discrimination, hatred, harm, because I want the full moral weight and frankly the condemnation and accusation of harm and hatred and discrimination to be thrust upon its exponents without the, the kind of humanizing othering with which we can all identify. You know, we all other others. We're all others to others. I mean, great. So, you know, I, 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 other people, mm -hmm. fine. But I, I want that to be neutral so you can focus on my failings. If you're going to accuse me of something really wrong, just wrong, and not shunt it to some kind of deeper psychological thing with which we can all identify. Look, we can all identify with the negativity, too. I mean, we're all guilty of these things as well. But fine, let's call it that. Let's name it morally, descriptively, accurately, and remove any masks or qualifications from it. And peri-phenomena, mm -hmm. you know, just... Where I struggle with your picture that you painted is just, I cannot get beyond knowing that 
othering is a critical part of discriminating. Like it's they're inextricably. Is that true? I mean, do. Isn't, isn't the dominant theory that all othering is a fiction anyway? That it's all a spectrum of human experience and that there is no race. It's all a construct. What do we not demonstrate? Really, really painful hatred and harm to people with whom we identify as well? Certainly we do that as well, and I don't mean to say that we and don't. Isn't, isn't it an old saw that internecine violence is much more virulent than transnational violence or what have you? I mean, I just don't see, like, the way in Nazi Germany they made Jews out to be like vermin or I mean it was it was an othering that went to like we were literally dehumanized right we were like animals and, and rodents and that was part of the mentality that they were fostering in order to enable people to do what they did right. to Jews so and, and and slaves in America as well I don't know I mean I just but that is just why I think I keep getting stuck on being able to sort of focus on this concept of othering as neutral because I think the phenomenon of differentiating ourselves from other people tends like I was once I was a mar I worked as a marshal at the Kennedy School when I was an undergrad and I remember this one speaker came in and said I'm going to divide you into two groups here so everyone you know this woman over is in one group and this woman now I just want you to look around the room and look at each other. And he said, no, what I bet is going on right now is that each group is looking for the ways in which they're sort of better, <laughs> or they have better people, or they have, they're more attractive, or they're looking for that, you know, and, and looking for ways to kind of put down the other group. Because the minute you sort of divide people into groups, people start to sort of cast negativity onto the other. And so maybe we're fundamentally, maybe this is the question, you know, that needs to be studied, it, it, which is, it, does that happen? You know, yeah, does right, right. othering that, necessitate that, right. that type right. of negative? Are correlated Right, and, and that's... And I'm just arguing uh, without any theoretical or academic basis, just because of the way I experience the world, that there is no correlation. I mean, mm -hmm. isn't all of diversity theory, which pitches diversity as a total positive, mm -hmm. doesn't it all presuppose otherness? I mean, there is no diversity if we're not different. And therefore, others vis-a-vis -vis one another, is that not not cast specifically as a good? Oh, 100%. But I think that the reason that diversity trainers exist and the reason it's that this we need is, it. Yeah, is because we need it. It's because uh, we're fighting other forces. Well, I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to, <laughs> to be to, to be convinced. I will I will think about it. It's a very compelling question. You make a very compelling argument. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now back to our podcast. I want to ask you, with your permission, to make a pointed question. Okay. In another article, also in the Huffington Post, you ask yourself if you should include racism among the sins for which you atone on Yom Kippur. And you conclude that, yes, you should. And very pithily, you say, I should and presumably will undertake the confession of racism as one of my sins because, and you give two reasons, because A, I benefit from it, and B, because I perpetuate it. And I have to tell you, the way I read that, my first question to you and the honest question is, were your reasons for being willing to confess racism as a sin, not a cop-out from simply 
confessing that you're a racist or that you have racism in you, just plain old having it instead of benefiting from it or perpetuating it, but that you embody it in some part of you. Hmm. It's interesting that you asked that question because I was just speaking today in my workshop here at CCAR about the question of whether or not racism can exist with no racists. And in fact, I actually folded down a page in this book I'm reading, Tears We Cannot Stop by Michael Eric Dyson, because I actually was looking forward to bringing in this line. Let me just see if I can find it really quickly. It's on this very point. He says, we end up with what social scientist Eduardo Bonilla Silva calls, quote, racism without racists. No one is responsible. Calling someone a racist sort of traditionally implies that someone is perpetrating the traditional definition of racism, which is intentional and individual acts of hatred and bigotry. And if we understand racism just to mean that that definition, which is still a valid definition, then being a racist means something very different from what being a racist means if you define racism in a newer way, this additional way to be a deeply rooted system where the group of people who are white have advantages over the group of people who are the people of color, even if individual white people never chose to be part of that system and don't even know that they're part of that system. And under that definition of institutional or systemic racism, which is one that's pretty hot and pretty talked about today, and there are millions of studies that bear it out, then the question is, So how am I part a racist and part of that racism? The reason that I didn't actually say, and I I think I will get there in my writing very soon, like this is, I'm atoning for being a racist, is because- Or that I harbor racism in me. Well, that's a separate, that's actually, let me get to that in a minute. But the reason that I didn't say I'm atoning for being a racist instead of should I atone for racism is because I'm trying to reach white Jews and I don't want to alienate them very quickly by sort of by sort of almost implying that I think you're all racist too because people so quickly go to the old-fashioned definition of racism and the old-fashioned definition of racist which implies some real intentionality KKK stuff but I do think that at least under this new definition of racism, which is this sort of system, right, where the group of people who are white have these advantages that I benefit and that my kids benefit from, yeah, you know, yeah. my teachers treat them and I benefit when I apply for jobs and I benefit when I talk to a real estate agent about looking for housing and I benefit when I interact with the police and my kids interact with the police and I benefit when I join protests and I benefit, you know, and I could, the right, list goes right. on. Okay, so that's that. But in terms of what is my, do I have negative thoughts or implicit bias towards black people inside of me? And am I atoning for that also, right? Which is sort of, an, I think the question that's that you what, are asking, exactly which I haven't, I think I've written about a little bit maybe in my uncovering my white privilege on Yom Kippur in that piece, but I do have a lot, just like this educator called Robin D'Angelo. Um, she's a white educator who talks a lot about this phenomenon of white fragility that white people have, but she talks about how we are all like fish swimming in a polluted ocean. 
And I'm one of those fish who grew up in the polluted ocean and I have implicit bias for sure that I battle. And it's very upsetting, you know, and you know, it's like there's this guy online, Jay Smooth, who has this comedy almost routine that he does around being anti-racist, who talks about the dental hygiene model. We need to move to a dental hygiene model. It's like you brush your teeth every day. And if someone says, hey, you got a piece of food stuck in your teeth today, you don't say, well, I brushed my teeth yesterday. It's like, no, I got to keep brushing my teeth and I have to keep brushing my teeth. You know, so I absolutely do. But I think I just wasn't taking that up in that article. In that article, I was talking about institutional racism and what is my relationship to it and making that personal, too. Got it. So, again, we we agree on the institutional stuff. So that didn't strike me as any way problematic. I was just worried not knowing you. And now, of course, I have the pleasure of knowing you, that it it felt like a (laughs) cop-out. Because it was Yom Kippur. And it was like this deep personal context. And I thought you were going there. And then I found out you were going in this, you know, because the institutional stuff is pretty vanilla. Forgive them. In other words, what you're saying, maybe, maybe in your world, the consciousness raising that you're trying to achieve by pointing out these institutional benefits that we have, maybe you encounter a lot more resistance than I do in my world. But everything you're saying about that is, again, readily stipulated by me. And even your personal relationship to it and the way you benefit from it oh, personally, right? You've uh, been talking about that this whole time. Right. I mean, I walk into a bar and, I mean, what, I get all kinds of benefits. So would you say you're a racist? I, I only chose to ask you the question because of the rapport we achieved. And I have to tell you, as I was writing the question out, I asked myself, if she's going to ask me the question right back at myself. And so, <laughs> and so I, I decided I would answer it to myself before I asked you. And I think that that's why I used the phrase I did for you right now, of harboring racism. Because I, I do, like anyone, and as you pointed out, I do, if I say I'm a racist, I am going to go to like KKK models of, you know, images in my head, and I don't think I'm that. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't actually have to hesitate to myself Right. really at all, when I phrased it this way, mm-hmm. do I harbor racism? You said unconscious bias. Absolutely. And I, I, I have no qualms saying so, except the moral qualm of being embarrassed that I should say so. That's right. But but I will say it. I, and that's what I was trying to get at in you. And I was only concerned mm-hmm. that your article was, in fact, in avoiding that. And what you're telling me is it's not that you were avoiding it, but that you were tackling something else. Mm-hmm. And that you're also, it's, it appears that you have a strategy that you feel that in order to tackle the systemic stuff, you can't afford rhetorically mm-hmm. to go to the deeply personal stuff because you suspect, and I suspect you're right, that any Jew in a Jewish context to whom you're speaking from the point of view of a Jew in a Jewish context, mm-hmm. if you say, I'm a racist and you do the self-flagellating thing, they're going to say, she's also calling me a racist. Yeah. And you know that they're going to plug their ears. Well, they're going to plug their ears. And this really gets to this concept of white fragility that this woman, Robin DeAngelo, this educator, writes about really well. Actually, it's an excellent article called White Fragility. But this concept that whites are used to having their feelings around race accommodated and not having to be uncomfortable. Right. And so Challenged. the minute we get uncomfortable, what most of us do is shut down completely. It's almost like, you know, the old-fashioned model of race training used to do that, too. It used to open people up, but it was so harsh that five minutes after the session, people used to completely constrict, and they, like, never wanted to go there again. It was so miserable and scarring. And I'm trying to do education about all of our racism, societies and all white peoples, really, in a way that helps people open up and stay open. So when I define racism in the systemic way that I do and talk about our relationship to it, what that enables me, and I think I wrote about this in the article, what that enables me to say to people is that way, as a white person, I can hate racism 
hate that I play a role in it, but not hate myself right. in the way that shuts me down and, and, and literally centers myself so that when I'm in relationship with a black or brown person and they're challenging me as I need to be challenged constantly to do better, I don't shut down. And instead of thinking, I'm feeling wounded or I'm afraid I'm looking racist in the bar, are you accusing me of being racist? All of those emotions dissipate because I realize right, I'm this fish in this right, polluted right, 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 water right, right, right. and I'm not the center. And instead, it's actually a seismic change in my mindset because instead I can think to myself, oh, wait a minute, instead of worrying about my feelings in this moment, wow, that per person of color didn't have to correct me or challenge me at all. It would have been easier for them to remain, that person was taking a risk by even pointing this out to me or bothering. They were investing in me. And instead of looking at that as something that shuts me down, I now look at it as a gift, like, oh, there I go. Thank you. You so know? I, I find very compelling everything you're saying, and I, I get it completely. It makes perfect sense to me. I guess instinctively, I think there's an opportunity in the inverse way if you say, I harbor racism. Let's just use the way the phrase, I harbor racism, because it doesn't go to the racist place with the KKK. But it's, so, so let's, again, let's stipulate. I appreciate that you weren't copying out and you weren't avoiding. You were just tackling something else and you can only tackle one at a time. But there's a beautiful, that there's a beautiful opportunity in also equally accessibly doing the other exercise of saying I harbor racism. And, and here's why. One definition of racism requires as an essential ingredient in it the power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And that's the one you're talking about. That's the, the, the that's a, like a race theory thing whereby it's not about preconceived notions and bias. It's about the exercise of preconceived notions and bias in a context where one person has more power than the other. Race plus prejudice plus power. Plus power. And, that, and that's sort of a, a classic academic right. definition of racism. And that you're drawing on a broader societal implications of that power imbalance for your definition and for, and for the consciousness raising, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term, that you're, that you're really mm -hmm. working to achieve. I get that. But if you use a non-technical definition of racism, as harboring prejudice, meaning that you take preconceived notions about people precisely in a preconceived way, meaning that you don't know the person, but you attribute to them unreasonably things you can't possibly attribute to them because of their outward difference. If you use that definition of racism and you, and you, you subtract the power issue from it, not because it's not there, but because we're talking about something else, the opportunity there is to talk about that definition of racism in ways that black and white people can talk about the same thing together about each other. Because clearly, all human beings experience these feelings about all other human beings or other groups in one way or another. And when you subtract the power, it's an opportunity in an otherwise very charged and very power imbalanced, uh, fraught conversation to, to have another conversation that is equally important and at the, at the level of, of a developing human being, but that is unexpectedly allows both parties to to connect around around a shared. I'd, I, yeah, with due respect. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's an equally important conversation because the power imbalance is so yeah. foremost in your mind. Well, because because there's a very real history of power but, imbalance but, and but, difference in lives mattering. So, I mean, if your if your if your ultimate goal is sort of connection or something, I still think it's not the right conversation I hear to have. You. I hear you. No, I actually wasn't even thinking about okay. connection. I was thinking about introspection. It's an interesting conversation. I mean, it's a very interesting right. conversation to have. I just don't think that there's an equity in the need to kind of examine how 
people of color prejudge or stereotype white people as I don't think that 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 there's an urgency around that that attaches to you know disadvantage and literally life and death I agree completely couldn't agree more Rachel it's been a great pleasure to speak to you thanks a lot for taking the time loved our conversation you've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit podcast produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion we hope you enjoyed this podcast and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu